0: Salutations, you fine homo sapien specimens. My name is Sam Lamont, and this is another episode of the How To Human podcast. And today, for this example of this fine introduction that is going to be done within an hour's time, we're going to go way back to our childhood. You come into this world blissfully unaware, and it's adorable. We think it's so hilarious when kids come out wearing their whole closet, thinking they're so cool and their mismatched shoes and socks, and we laugh and we take a photo to shame them later in life and remind them how silly and unaware they were. Because when it comes to such things, well, you can't be a child about it and just go with what feels right. Life is full of choices. Right ones and wrong ones. And we will teach you how to make the right decision. Because when you make the wrong one, well, we have a way of handling that. We teach you in a way that you will never, ever forget. Ma'am, it appears you're in direct violation of the crime of wearing comfy Australian slip-on boots that nobody wears anymore. Simply no one. You should have known this by now. And so you are formally being charged as being basic as all hell and having the taste of a lima bean and... We will tell everyone about it and make fun of you on your behalf to teach other people. Do not wear those boots. (laughs) (laughs) And before you know it, you've crossed some line and you're no longer in that cute kid phase where you get to make a ton of mistakes. No, now you should know better. You still listen to that? Oh my God, you cannot go out looking like that. Yeah, I don't know if that's your color. People will talk. was a time when you got to decide these little things, but you know what? Opinions are like buttholes, and yours doesn't matter, apparently. And I guess neither does your butthole. But not to worry. We have a giant machine set up of all the professionals of any area you could ever want. And we can tell you what to wear, and what music to like, and what movies to like, and what good art is. And matter of fact, just how to feel. You, you shouldn't even feel bad. You should feel good all the time, because goodness and happiness can be bought for the cheap price of $9.99 a month. And... We'll even ship you clothing in a box that a stylist who knows style can tell you where to wear. But not to worry, everybody. I know this is a little hectic. I know life's a little hectic. But please, I've found a professional for us. Ladies and gentlemen, and non-binary, and any other expressions of being human, may I present to you today's guest, Frank Rich, who can teach us from his experience of being head theater critic of The New York Times, where he was also called The Butcher Broadway, and when he liked shows that everyone else hated, was accused of horrific things, like fraternizing with the people who put it on. He's also been a columnist for New York Magazine, and is a producer for HBO, where he's brought such shows to life like Beep. Now, Frank is known for his political writing, where we will not touch that with a 10-foot pole, because this program does not engage in politics for better or worse. But... He's a brilliant man and I really had fun talking with him about the art of having an opinion and the art of creating and critiquing yourself and so many things to draw from here. So without further ado, here is my conversation with the legendary Frank Rich. I'd also like to add that my mother turned into a giant fangirl and actually wanted to come on the trip with me to meet Frank Rich. And I had to say, no, mom, you may not come with me. I'm sorry. It's just it's too much. Okay, here's the conversation. And we're live. Okay, All right. Hey, Frank, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. So this is kind of how I like to start the show
1: and you can make it as big or small of a question as you like. But who are you? Who am I? I am a, um, a writer, a television producer, a husband, a father, and beyond that, I don't know. It's, not, it's no simple formulation except I'm 69 years old. I live in New York City most of the time. I have two adult children and, who are both married to delightful young women and who each have babies, uh, one just under two and one just over one. And so I've entered that sort of grandparenting moment, uh, which is quite the cliche everyone says. And um, I'm very lucky to be doing work that I absolutely love. I write journalism. I produce television shows. And feeling uh, something I've not always felt in my life, but pretty pretty content and feeling quite lucky. That's a lot. Yeah. That's like doing pretty well. For content- yeah, I mean, because, you know, I'm... I've, like everyone, you know, I've had my ups and downs. I was a child of divorce. I've been divorced myself. I've got, ultimately got happily remarried. Um, I've, uh, but I've accomplished a lot of things I wanted to accomplish about the passions that I've had really since childhood. To back up a bit, nowadays you're a creative consultant or producer? Yeah, at at HBO, I am a creative consultant with and a producer. So as a creative consultant, that's sort of being part of the conversation about a lot of things that go on at HBO uh, in various parts of programming for the most part, because um, it's it, it's a actually a rather intimate company by the standards of Hollywood, you know, networks and studios. And so there's a continuing conversation about series and films and documentaries. And, and um, so I'm par- part of that. And I'm often looking at material whether it's cuts or scripts that are coming to the network and giving my two cents about them from the beginning i've been doing this for 10 years from the beginning i had the option to try to produce stuff if i wanted to which was sort of a completely new world for me nothing i'd done before although i had always had a passion about show business and entertainment and 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 i was a theater nut as a child and and the first big chunk of my career i was the new york times theater critic so i had this all sort of in my genes but anyway so i started producing i produced a couple of documentaries and um, two series one of which veep is just about to begin production on its seventh and final season in los angeles and the other succession is just about to finish broadcasting its first season on HBO and we'll have a, it's been picked up for a second season. And like anyone in show business, I've also developed and produced things that have come to naught, you know, and and not made it. You know, you you hit and miss.
0: One of the really interesting parts about this interview is that a huge part of your career is as a political columnist. Right. And this program has no stance on politics. I don't know if our listeners have noticed that or not, but so I'm gonna dance carefully around that Sure, um, just because nobody wants to hear the no, opinion. No, I, I know, and and you know, I, I'm a college dropout, ex junkie. Like no one cares what I think about politics. <laughs>
1: well, that's that's, <laughs> and lucky you. Um, yeah, but sh- but sure, I should say the other half of my career has been as a journalist. First yes. as a television film critic, then for many years as the Times' chief theater critic, then as a columnist at the Times and then as an essayist at New York magazine where i'm writer at large now and in the columnist mode but whether at the times or at new york and i've written for other you know the new york review books and other places i've always written about politics but also culture
0: yeah when i was looking into the the moment i stumbled on your exit piece called exit the critic right which was about kind of wrapping up the period of you being the theater critic for the times i knew that was kind of the vein that i wanted this conversation to be about sure it's a really incredible um story like your your life and your experience um so you were labeled eventually the butcher of broadway right and speaking to people who were in new york at the time uh they said that you were it I mean, people weren't reading other critics reviews. They were really reading the, the New York times to see what shows were worth their time and their money. And that's, uh, that's a lot of power to have.
1: And a lot of responsibility yeah. that the world has changed in terms of journalism now. So no, no journalistic institution, including the times has that kind of cloud anymore. My, period of being drama critic was primarily in the 1980s. So I left it just before the internet came along and, 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 you know, the world changed from drama criticism to Yelp to every kind of thing in for decades, the times had a lot of clout. And this isn't nearly merely a reflection of me, but really anyone who had the job, uh, for a pretty simple reason, a it was the premier paper, but also, it devoted at that time the most coverage to the theater of any publication, any general interest publication in America. So if you wanted to find out what shows were coming in or what this playwright was like or this actor was really like, the profiles, the news stories, the features would all be in the time. So naturally, readers who cared about the theater would gravitate there and read their read the critic, too. Um, I did the job for about a dozen years. And. I I grew up loving the theater and I loved writing about the theater. And I think one reason I started writing about the theater, even when I was in high school, was, hey, I've just seen this great play and I want to tell a lot of people, particularly like my peers in high school, didn't give a damn how great it was, you know, and and this out of my enthusiasm. And um, I always liked that part of the job at the times, but it is unfortunate that a lot of uh, you see a lot of stuff that's not great and have to say so. And then my job was to serve the reader of the Times. Most readers of the Times felt I was too lenient. And I think almost any theater critic would be more lenient because why are you in it? You love the theater. Yeah. Uh, a Times reader paying exorbitant price uh, for tickets and not wanting to waste an evening much harsher. People <laughs> in the theater didn't like criticism, but readers always said, why did you like, you know, Sunday in the Park with George or Fences or whatever it was at that time? But it was an interesting job. I had, it was placed, uh, I loved the writing and ultimately I burned out on it for several reasons. One of which was, it was a terrible time in the New York theater. By the time I left it, it was by which I mean, economically, the theater was very depressed. Broadway theaters, now it's almost impossible, you know, 30 years later, 25 years later, to book a Broadway house. There are producers waiting in line for theaters to become vacant. When I was viewing, the th- most of the, half the theaters were dark for seasons on end. Theaters that now people are waiting to get into. There was very little there was a decline in production. And I realized I was writing about, about the same five writers I admired, over and over again, whether it be Sondheim or David Mamet or August Wilson, um, I was uh, just saying, well, I'd run out of ideas. Well, this play may be a little better or worse than the previous Mamet play or Sondheim musical, um, but it was boring. And I I wanted to get out and plotted my escape. And my own feeling from my own experience is most critics in most fields should get out in a reasonable amount of time. But most- Before before they get cynical. Before they get cynical, before, you know, before it becomes um, routine when the magic and the excitement of doing it goes, but very few do. And indeed, the colleagues I had as drama critics from other publications, almost every single one of them, who still there, obviously, after I left, died in the job. I mean, you know, that's, that's the typical way. But I've always shaken up my career a lot since then, too. So- um, it was the right course for me.
0: I mean, it is a really prestigious job to kind of step away from. So, I love
1: stepping away from yeah. <laughs> prestigious jobs. Um, yeah, I am.
0: Um, so I, yeah, I, I understand their uh, their desire to, to die in the, in the job. But uh, uh, yeah, I do think that, yeah, of course you're going to get burnt out at some point. And, I mean,
1: yeah, you're going to get burnt out doing, I feel, anyone thing. Now, look, I've been lucky that I've been able to shake it up
0: as a creative when i was
1: reading about you as a critic
0: it brought up so many weird feelings for me because i relate to the the theater company's view of the critics and then what's as reading your side of it i also realized that you know what when i want to figure out what movies to go watch i go read reviews here's where things get really interesting for me is mm-hmm. that a big part of what you learned from day 1 is to believe in that kind of gut feeling that you had because the first show you went to you had no clout yet right and uh it was a a playwright who you loved merrick a producer, a producer producer Mer- sorry oh, was this some um,
1: 40 seconds Street, 40- yeah, the producer david love is a strange word because he was a a bastard as a person and i didn't know him personally but he was a brilliant producer you loved his previous i loved his work. i grew up admiring him as the stuff that he produced
0: and the first show that you have to cover you don't love right and so what what it brought up for me is you know when you go to an art show and you see people look at the art and they're almost looking around to try and gauge how other people feel is a big part of what you learned was to trust that that kind of inner core feeling that you had Exactly. How did you instill and honor that? Because there are times where you loved a show that everybody hated. You said people were walking out during the show, and it wasn't until later that the show got any praise besides you. So I was wondering, how did you come to cultivate that listening?
1: That's a great question, and I think I have an answer for it. All these years later, decades later, I still have in me that – and I really can, I can touch it in a second. Um, that feeling I had as a child waiting for the curtain to go up and being incredibly excited to see what was going to happen behind the curtain. And and of course it was years, not years, but it was not until I probably was an adolescence and I realized, oh, maybe some shows are better than others. I loved everything I saw. And I still have that. I have it when I go to the theater and I can also just summon it Mentally, so when I was a critic, I knew I had to preserve that, and to preserve it took a certain kind of work. For instance, I never read interviews with the creators of a show that might even run in the New York Times before the show opened. I never read features; there would always be them. I never read them. I didn't want to hear anything. I would not. I would tell friends who might be going to previews of a play, I do not want to hear a word from you. I don't, not only whether you liked it or not, I don't want to hear. That the set was read, you know I don't want to hear anything really tuned in. I did not have friends in the theater, so I wasn't hearing gossip, and of course, this was pre internet day, so it was easy to escape gossip anyway. There weren't all these vehicles for it that there are are now, and with new plays, I never read I never read them in advance after I s we'd go to the last preview, I'd have a day to basically work on my review if I needed to check lines of dialogue or something, I'd send for the script afterwards. But I, you know, obviously if you're seeing a new production of Hamlet, you've read or seen Hamlet. But, and then I learned very early on too, just to ignore the audience response around me. Now there are two ways, two reasons for that. One was when I was a teenager uh, going to uh, public junior high school and high school in Washington, D.C., I made money as a ticket taker, at a legitimate, at a roadhouse for for Broadway plays in the days when Broadway plays tried out, had their previews outside of New York. That previews in New York is a relatively modern invention. They'd go to New, they'd go to Washington, New Haven, Philadelphia, and Boston by and large, for several weeks, and then come to Broadway and open. and And I hung around the theater so much buying standing room. The manager took pity on me and gave me a job as a ticket taker, which was great because I could see the show for free. I'd also, it was an incredible learning experience because I could see the creators of the show as a teenager standing in the back, rework something that wasn't working and put in changes every night. You know, it was amazing, great, great experience for me. But I also learned that the Washington audiences were really, really unsophisticated, pushovers for crap and often didn't recognize quality and um and i would find my opinion was often different i'd be standing in the back of the house after i'd taken the tickets and i'd be standing in the back of the orchestra floor and i'd see a show that was mediocre and people just cheering and screaming and then i would feel i'd be vindicated because then the show would go into new york get terrible reviews and close (laughs) in a week but i also saw the reverse. One example that really had an effect on me when I was 11 or 12 years old, there was a musical that was the first musical that Stephen Sondheim wrote the music and lyrics for. It was called A Funny Thing Happened Away the Forum, and it's since been a, become a classic. But in 1961, I think it was, it was trying out in Washington on its way to New York. It got such bad reviews from the Washington papers that my parents didn't want me to see it because among the other things, the reviews said it was lewd and vulgar because it was in part of, had sexual, it was a farce and it's very, you know, PG at most, but by the standards of the time there were prostitutes in it and then I was a kid. But I, I, I begged uh, to go and I went, this is before I was a ticket taker to, at the national theater in Washington. I went to the last Saturday matinee in a three week run the week before it was going to open on Broadway The reviews have been so bad that in a 1,700-seat house, there were only 50 people in the audience. I watched this show, and I think it is just absolutely hilarious. I cannot—and I love the songs. had great actors led by Zero Mostel. I said, this is like one of the greatest things I've seen. But I said, I must be an idiot because every adult, including relatives who had seen it, told me it was awful. The critics of Washington said it was awful. And the audience sat on its hands and it was really, you felt sorry for the actors who were giving their all. A week later, it goes uh, to Broadway. (laughs) It gets Complete rave reviews. It runs four years. It's become part of the American theater. and d- during the run, early during the run, I went to New York, I guess with my family, and I said, well, they must have completely rewritten the show in the week after I saw it because how could it get these great reviews? And it sort of sounds like what I saw. So by that, I had to wait in line early in the morning to get standing room. you couldn't get you couldn't get into the theater in, in New York because it was such a big hit. And except, except for Changing One Song it was exactly the show I'd seen in Washington. And it was such a lesson to me in sticking to my own gut reaction of what I see on that stage. And that would play out for me as a critic because, first of all, almost every show a critic sees is now when the critics go, it's packed with backers. So they're giving standing ovations to something that's so bad it could close an intermission. I mean, that just, it's like childish behavior. You can't believe it. Rarely do you see what, uh, therefore you never see, or almost never see a uh, uh, an audience um, be negative about anything. So you really have to tune it out. It's like white noise. But there are occasional exceptions. And usually the exception was a show has had trouble during previews trouble being manifested by the fact that they postponed the official opening because they're not ready to open yet. And sometimes when that happens, they can't stack the house because they had sold the tickets in advance, not knowing they were going to delay the opening. And one example was decades later, when uh, 25 years later, another Stephen Sondheim song, Sunday in the Park with George, which kept postponing its opening. By the time they invited critics in, Seat, a lot of the seats have been sold so they couldn't put their friends and backers there and I went to review it and there were it was a night where it was obviously a benefit audience and there were just people walking out people just did not understand didn't like it they were bored people some people didn't even wait till intermission to leave and the audience really thinned out and I said to myself I'm sitting here so moved by the show I was crying I said how, how would I how could I ignore that reaction. My The critic's job is not to be a pollster. It's to, for better or worse, go with your gut and say what you really feel. You're not a politician. You're supposed to have a human reaction to what you're seeing. And so I wrote a very favorable review. Um, most of the reviews were, were poor. Uh, and indeed, I was even attacked, like in Variety, why does... Why does he like this show that's so obviously awful and so on? And that's another show where I feel very happy about that part of my drama critic stint that I kept it going. It still, by the way, was not a big hit. Even with a great Times review for me, it never made its money back in its original production. It did not win the Tony. Uh, it, uh, It had a decent run, but not a great run. But here we are years later, and it's being... Constantly revived all over the world, and I sometimes think, given that all the other reviews or almost all of them were so negative, that if I hadn't liked it, it might have closed in a week. So, you know, you have to go with your gut and champion what you believe in. Yeah, uh,
0: that one particularly had some uh, great cost here. Like rumors were starting. That oh yeah, I, I was sleeping sleep- with people. I was sleeping
1: yeah. with people that the that the author and director of uh, the author of the book. James Lapine, and um, uh, uh, who also directed the show, was my college roommate. Not only were we not college roommates, we didn't go to the same college, we weren't the same age, and I'd never met him. But (laughs) that's the because how you know there must the fix must be in. How could someone have such a strong emotional reaction to this show that everyone knows is just a pretentious bore? That was sort of the reaction to my review. Yeah, totally. but I wouldn't take it back for the world. I mean, you know, obviously.
0: Yeah, that was a line I just uh, highlighted. It was stubborn faith. I just love that line, like stubborn faith, kind of in your gut.
1: Yeah, and I really, and by the way, in in the work I do now in television, everything I learned that's in the past is useful in uh, uh, my career in, in television. I learned from that. It all comes out of that. Uh, My gut reaction to reading a script or looking at a cut or helping get cast actors, whatever it is, I've learned to trust it and 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 keep it real part of, you know, my mental, psychological makeup, whatever, you know, character, whatever you want to call it.
0: Yeah, that's kind of where I wanted to go was the the crossover between being a critic and then being a creative where you've got this basically incredible education in story and in feeling and in the, the moments that do create magic you wrote a line that i like the tickling sensation on the back of my neck that always arrives when, when the theater speaks to me at a level so deep that my spirit responds before my mind and what i was curious is as a creator what or or as a critic just how do you what do you think makes a great story or what do you think makes that magic moment I remember seeing I forget which one but a Cirque du Soleil show where I felt like a little kid again
1: and it was like magic is real and I think there's no one-size-fits-all answer to that because one thing is you have to be open to the unexpected I don't think anything can create magic whether it be theater or television show if you see it coming. And you know, there's a tendency in show business, oh, that was a hit. So let's do another version of that. That never works. And the and and it's been my experience, I feel, and I think it's historically true, that often the things that are the most powerful you don't see coming. You could take many examples from a lot of modern plays to television shows. You know, who who would have thought that a drama about advertising men and women in the 1950s with no stars uh, would, you know, grip people for six or seven years. That there be in this office life, there would be something uh, uh, so powerful to people. Another example in television: *Sopranos*. There have been me- there have been many great gangster movies and TV shows, and of course, there's the whole Coppola *Godfather* epic way before the Sopranos existed but it's not that the that that the head of a mafia family would be going to a shrink because of his mother is a tra- no one thought of that before you know and you know because you would think why would anyone after the godfather why would anyone do a, a mafia epic but of course David Chase had 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 ways to do it so It's never, if it's always being made in the same way in a cookie cutter fashion, then I feel it can't be magical. Like I feel if you've seen one Disney musical, you've seen them all and, and, you know, no one's, if people found, um, the Lion King magical and found others less magical since not everyone feels this way, but it's because you can't re, you can't keep reinventing the wheel. You've got to find a different wheel. You can only kill the parents so many times. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and exactly. And so, um, the 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 fun of it and the excitement of it is, oh my gosh, that's an original voice, or something like Cirque du Soleil. That's an original effect, or a, a, you know, a conception of a of a of spectacle. That's a, a comic voice. You've you know stand up comic. You've never heard, you know. I think of someone like when I was a kid, like George Carlin. You'd never heard a voice like that in comedy before, and so you don't you don't see it coming. And that's you could say it's also true in pop music history. Pop music, rock music, it's always it's something new that catches you unawares. And while there'll always be a market for stuff, some people only want to see formulaic stuff because they're not maybe not in and that's fair enough they're not in the market it's comfortable you know it's comfortable and it's like getting fast food you know if you some people want mcdonald's and some people want mcdonald's and culture too they want to see a certain kind of entertainment and know that uh and there's always been a big market for that and there always will be but if if you're bored by that uh and outgrow that then you're constantly looking for something that you haven't seen before. And sometimes when you see something that you haven't seen before, it won't be moving. Not everything works, obviously, but usually when you look back and say, God, that really nailed me. Well, usually it's something new. It might be a new performance, new thought, whatever. So where
0: then do you create from? What are your your compasses
1: when you're creating something? Well, in writing... I go with my gut because, in, and if I'm writing not journalism about, let's take Donald Trump, not to talk politically about Donald Trump, but Donald Trump just as an aesthetic subject, he's a great subject because everyone has an opinion about him. Everyone has strong feelings about him. I think everyone can agree, those who loathe him and those who love him, there's never been anyone like that in the <laughs> White House before. I think that's one thing that that all Americans can agree upon. And and so in I've found him a great subject to write about because it brings my gut into play. It's easy to have an opinion about his views or his policies. This gets back to my whole point about drama criticism. Anyone can agree or disagree with Trump about immigration, say. But where is it coming from? what what How does it play out in America? How does it play out in the culture? Uh, beyond the policy issue per se, um, that's something to play with, with your gut, not just intellectually. Yes, you have to know the issues, you have to know the facts, and, and that's part of it. But to me, writing about him as a character, I often rely on my gut, having absorbed all the factual information, but everyone can write about that factual information. So I ask, what can I... How can I look at this from a different perspective and write about it? And so that and frankly, he's much, much more interesting to write about than, say, Hillary Clinton would have been if she had won, because Hillary Clinton, again, whatever you think of her, she's pretty expected. She's not going to do something that's going to shock you, whatever you think of her. And that can be a deadening as, as a subject. just like I would imagine if you're a movie critic now reviewing franchise movie after franchise, you know, tentpole movie after tentpole movie about the same superheroes. So that's where, then the case of television, What, when, when, what I love about working in television is completely collaborative. I'm a producer. I don't, I'm in the writer's room talking with writers, throwing ideas around, stories around, jokes around or whatever. But for me, of course I go with my gut and it's, and it's, terrific it's like mickey and judy putting on a show it's 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 make-believe you know a show like veep to take an example it's about something that's real presidents and vice presidents and politics but it has no journalistic component at all we never even mention a contemporary politician The names clinton obama and trump are never mentioned in veep or they're never referred to in any way so to have that freedom to sort of with a bunch of brilliant writers and, and sh- brilliant showrunners to start with a blank slate and then well what if this character did this and what car- this character did that and have work with your gut to try to think what's funny what's a terrific story you want to be as childlike as you can because that way you can be as imaginative as you can you don't want to say oh what would another what did a you know SNL do last week satirizing the White House that's that's not what you do at all you think of you, you have the gift of being able to make things up completely it's the opposite of journalism how when you're working on a project
0: let's say it could be the a column or probably more we get more feedback from is the tv shows how do you integrate critiques into
1: your process with when other people are critiquing your baby well, it's very it's very interesting to be on the other side of criticism, and um, of course, now I think critics are all idiots. No, I'm joking, but but um, I think the point is not to integrate the critics. The point is to stand up for what the thing you want to make, because that way lies madness. And in some ways, it's another it's another version of what I was talking about in terms of being a theater critic and not being influenced by an audience that's either cheering or yawning. In your opinion, I think. It's interesting to read critics, and it's always very gratifying, of course, when people like what you're doing, but more important, when people understand what you're doing and articulate it in an interesting way, Uh, and and that's definitely happened with the stuff I've worked on, but even someone who gets what you're doing and is favorable... You don't want that person to pitch you stories for the show. You want your own stories, your own characters. You want, you know, like a favorable review could say, and by the way, next season, why don't they have this character do this and this character do that? That's not the way it works. Then you tune it out because you're going, everyone here is going on V or Succession, is going with their guts of what they see the stories and characters to be. They have a life of their own in our minds and hearts, and it's not going to be influenced by outside forces it's like you have children that you're raising in a sense you're you're interested to hear about other people's parenting of their children but in the end your parents to your children you're going to do in your gut what you think is the right thing to do
0: so part of the creative process always means self-critiquing the inner critic. that absolutely and so yesterday for example i was pretty stressed out i have to cover a lot of material on this trip in a short period of time, and I go. You know, what'd be nice is to watercolor. That'd be like really stressed. And Sounds like
1: idyllic to me. Yeah, that as a kid, I'd
0: love to do. And that. I have this little portable watercolors, and I'm not a painter, so it. You know, it seems like there's no pressure to do good. Well, anyway, I start drawing and then erasing, and then drawing and erasing and erasing and erasing, until finally I just had to just grab a pen and just outline what I had, so I couldn't go back anymore. And I think that's really the case with writing, too, where you can change a paragraph so many times until it no longer even makes sense.:
1: Completely. And, and ultimately, you imposed a deadline on yourself. In journalism intelligence, a deadline is imposed on you at a certain like for instance, uh, we're speaking at uh, the offices of Veep at Paramount and, and Hollywood. We start shooting in mid-August on Mon- we're speaking on a Friday, on Monday we're going to have the cast come in and sit around a table and read out loud the scripts of the first two episodes we're going to shoot imminently. And, we, and those scripts have to be in shape because the actors are going to read them. They have, ultimately have to learn the lines. Also, we have to, sets are going to be built. Locations are going to be chosen. So you really have to get it go. You have to have something that's not quite in cement but pretty far along. So, you know, we're we're not cool. here. It is Friday. We still have work to do before 11 a.m. on um, uh, Monday when the table read happens. And so like anyone else, you, know, you like to procrastinate. You take your time. But at a certain point, you really have to uh, shit or get off the pot. You really have to deliver. Just like if you're writing for a newspaper or magazine, it's going to press, man. You can't <laughs> you can't keep fiddling with it. And so that clarifies the mind. It can be terrifying, but that's the way it works. And because ultimately, you do have to deliver it. It's not writing something you can put into a drawer. That's a fun experience too. But that's maybe not how you necessarily earn your living. If you know, if you're doing work that has to go out into the world, you've, at some point you've got to give birth to it. Yeah. So
0: deadlines are important, self-imposed or not. And it's a, it's a difficult balance because the inner critic in one sense can take responsibility for your work being at a high standard, right? That you t- you took the time to look at it and go, you know what, that's cute, but that's not important. That's got to go. And at other points can become really abusive or just not.
1: Oh, it's, uh, I've struggled with this my whole career. I find, you know, I find writing much of my career, I've found writing very difficult. I've I am um, I'm very critical of myself, and also at a certain point where you're really buried in a piece, you can't see straight anymore. You really don't know what you have, which is the point of editors, of course, or in uh, some sense part of the point of producers with and, and networks, television, um, and it's it's scary i mean and and can be quite um produce a high level of anxiety in recent years i've gotten a little better about it but only in very recent years and i still have plenty of it and and i'm yeah i'm always questioning what i'm doing and and there was an incident that happened on veep that didn't that involved another writer um a very good writer on the show uh, several seasons ago. There was an episode that the showrunner wasn't quite happy with, and we kept rewriting, rewriting it as we were shooting it, rewriting individual scenes, rewriting overnight. And one day I'm on set as it's being shot, and I see one of the key writers on V, you know, hunched over his laptop, you know, rewriting yet again a scene that was about to shoot it had been rewritten, I don't know, 15 times by various people by that point. And I said to him, Tony, um, do you ever think maybe you're making it worse? I, didn't, I hadn't <laughs> read it written. I, I said, you know, you've done it so many times. So I said, I thought it was pretty, pretty great, you know, the last version. And he looked up, paused, he said, you may have a point, but I realized if I let myself think that, I'll completely fall apart and get nothing done, and I felt oh, I felt badly that I had said that. But I think every writer has that fear buried inside.
0: Yeah, what ended up happening? It
1: was great. And whether he really, <laughs> and and and, with, and the changes were probably on the margins, and probably if we'd shot the previous version, we would have been just as happy with it. Knowing when to let go of something is very very difficult, and that's why sometimes a deadline can be useful because you're forced to let go of it indeed the, the little bit of training i got in journalism i went to a high school institute for high school newspaper editors at, at northwestern university's journalism school i meant there was like a summer program after 11th grade it was the days of typewriters and the first day of class as it were there were 100 kids from all over the country in a huge lecture hall at northwestern but on long desk and each person was given a typewriter and they start giving you a lecture and then someone comes out and stabs the lecturer and you realize you're watching a staged obviously crime that you then have to report and write about on the spot it's like teaching you how to do a news story and things keep happening you know another teacher comes out and playing a cop and arrests the, you know all this sort of stuff happens and you keep having to change, and it was the day you had to rip the paper out of the typewriter. And at a certain point they said, Well, now in ten minutes we're going to press, and so you better get your stories in. And then ten minutes in, the the graduate assistants or whatever at the uh, Northwestern Medill school came and just ripped the paper out of every kid's typewriter, mid-sentence or whatever. It was here it is decades later. I still remember it because sometimes you need that or you're just never going to come to the point.
0: You need that time to ship it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's awesome. I, yeah, I wonder what that would look like if I just like uh, started a project. Like, okay, I'm going to share this on social media At in certain, an hour. In an hour, <laughs> yes. And the and
1: you know my yeah. my alarm's going off, and that's it. And if it's half finished,
0: that's what gets yeah. shared. I love that. You have two sons. I do. Grown children. Yep. Both really good
1: writers. Great writers. Great guys. More importantly,
0: I know them from the writing and. What do you, what do you consider you were able to give them? I know that your wife now too, is also a great writer and they, they were also helped raised by her.
1: Absolutely. And, and, and their, and my first wife, their mother, um, is, was and is a very accomplished uh, book editor and publishing. And Alex, my, my wife is a wonderful writer, uh, and got involved in Nathaniel Simon when they were very young. She met them when, when, uh, and been a, they've been a, we've all been a part of each other's lives ever you know all these years i my thing about raising kids and i you know and everyone has different attitudes about raising kids but i in no way did i or alex or their mother gail ever say oh you must be a writer and you must be in this family business never we everyone we were on the same page follow any passion you have And, um, you know, at one point I think Simon, uh, wanted to, to be like, you know, an NBA player, you know, like to be on the Knicks, you know, he was very young. He suddenly realized that maybe he was about a foot too short, but my feeling with any kid, not just my kid, if whatever that, and this comes totally from my own experience about falling in love with the theater, it doesn't matter whether it's playing a musical instrument or, uh, uh, playing sports or collecting Baseball cards or, uh, you know, whatever, just let the kid follow it. Because to me, the saddest thing a child cannot have is a child doesn't have a passion. And I've, and you see that sometimes. I see it sometimes in my kids' friends who are very well educated, very accomplished. And, but they don't really know what they want to do with their lives because they just never found a passion. So I feel you encourage whatever it is. And, and then see what and then step away from it my father was in retail shoe, at a small retail shoe business in in washington if he had pushed it i would have revolted against it i revolted against it anyway um and did something no one in my family had yet done in trying to become a writer but um i feel any parent tries to you know force a child to do into a career or an avocation that the child doesn't feel is pointless so let let We let the kids do, you know, really just, you know, follow their noses. And, you know, Simon has said in interviews, he's a wonderful humor writer and television writer and novelist, all of that. But he said, he said in one interview, he said, the best thing my parents did for me was let me watch The Simpsons five times a day, Uh, which we did because he just loved the Simpsons. And years later, he would write an episode of The Simpsons. But, you know, he was just doing it as a child when it began. And his brother um, was and is a fanatic about um, reading Stephen King novels. And I think that really shaped him. And you could see a situation where in some, some parents say, oh, wait a minute, you can't let a child watch that much television or you can't let child read those scary books when he's too young for them and so on i just always never we never took that attitude and indeed my parents and my mother in particularly when i look back on it they really let me run free in terms of the theater you know they let me go at night and you know in washington downtown when i was basically a kid take the bus downtown and buy standing room to see a show i think you know most probably most of my Parents, peers at the time wouldn't let their kids go unaccompanied into downtown Washington uh, after dark. But my parents, were like, you want to see that show so badly, and you've saved up enough money to buy a standing room ticket and the bus fare, then you just go. It's kind of it's kind of amazing when I think back on it. But I feel very lucky that I had that. And so I've tried to be that kind of parent to, uh, as we all have, to Nat and Simon.
0: And when you found out that they were in this, because I mean, writing is one example, but it's, it's the base of, of most art, you know, is writing, or at least understanding story and narrative. What were the big things that you felt like you could offer them? What were the big kind of pieces of, you know what, I've been doing this, take it or leave it. This is
1: what I could tell you. My instinct has been, and I think it served me well and the boys well, is to only Give advice or counsel if they ask for it. I've never said, "Oh, I, I, you know, if they want to show me something advanced to read." And this dates back to like high school. Um, great, and if not, not. And if they have a professional question where uh, I can be helpful or Alex can be helpful, um, ask it, and um, we'll tell you what we know. But with with well, we will certainly not instruct you on what to do, but here is our experience. And so, and by the way, similarly, I've never said to my sons, you must read this piece I've written or this book I've written ever. And so I really give them their own head. My biggest concern, frankly, was if they're they're boys, they're four years apart in age. Would they be hyper competitive with each other? And with that, entering a very di- writing's a very difficult careers. We all know, and uh, ill advised, ill advised. Yeah, Ill- <laughs> and um, somehow they've worked it out where they're very close. You know, siblings don't have to be close to each other, but they actually are. They've forged careers in writing that are parallel, but actually not. They're in different have, spheres. They
0: both have their niche, yeah.
1: Yeah, that exactly. So it's been a joy. It's just a joy to watch them, and I'm honestly in awe of both their talents. I really try not to be intrusive and never get involved in managing what they're doing, or and and I I I'm just think the world of both of them.
0: You've been really generous for your time. Oh, no, I'm
1: delighted to talk to you.
0: I have uh, two questions. You really you started off that you're really content these days with your work, and um. A couple of weeks ago, I was feeling really bogged down because uh, it's a lot of work. You know, life is a lot of work, but this project takes a ton of time. And uh, something clicked where I realized, holy cow, you have the best job in the world, you know. but And those two thoughts could happen within 30 seconds of each other.
1: That happens to me all the time. That's yeah. completely normal. I I feel overwhelmed with work and overwhelmed with things I have to do and things I haven't finished and anxious about it, and that never goes away. And then I'll turn around and say, wait a minute, how fucking lucky am I I'm doing this work I love? And just slow down a second, you know, smell the flowers, whatever the cliche is, and enjoy it. And stop thinking about it as a series of, oh, I've got to do this, I've got to do, you know. And uh, But I think that's t- – to me, at least, that's totally natural and it happens to me all the time. When I say I'm content, I mean emotionally content. I don't mean that I'm content that everything I do is – the work I do is great or anything like that. I just mean I'm content in the sense I do enjoy my work, but there are plenty of times when I get overwhelmed by the volume of it. Or the How do you course correct that
0: and make sure that you still have that magic you inside know, of you for
1: your own art, your own work? I guess when I say I'm content, I'm finding it easier to do that at this point in my life. Now, look, maybe it's partially because of the television work. It's a relatively recent career. I've only been doing it ten years. I found it late, late in you know my work life, and has really tapped back into this sort of theater love that I had as a child. So, I so if I were still just writing, one of the reasons I left the New York Times op-ed page was I just didn't want to after 17 years keep churning that out responding being like a monkey on a string basically or hamster on a treadmill or whatever the cliche is responding to every single news event and having to have an opinion about it and so I changed my career because I knew I was unhappy and I couldn't fix it so I've often done that I've changed my career every once in a while in part because I couldn't see a way out of feeling burned out and start, starting to not enjoy it and as i've said before it's a luxury that i've been able to have opportunities to to change it because not everyone most people can't do so and i've been lucky. i mean i've made opportunities for myself i've worked hard at it and taken some real risks and you know left off buildings in terms of you know no one ever leaves the times drama critics job and i you know i left it twenty when 25 years ago now uh, around 25 years ago um and uh uh so yeah take, but but I'm in this phase now where I'm so enjoying my work and it's fresh work for me it's a really recent development and it's actually made me enjoy writing my own journalism more because I'm doing it a little less because to make room for the television and picking my shots more and picking things I really really want to write rather than feeling I have to have a comment on it every time something happens in the White House you know
0: that's a nice thing about putting your work in huh it's eventually you get to pick and choose
1: exactly and, and I stress you know I've had I've been working for, you know, I've been working as a professional writer for uh, 45 years. So so it's not like this happened overnight that I could make the, have these options and choices.
0: This is the, uh, the question I always end the program with, and I'm always changing the circumstances so people don't get bored of it. <clears throat> so bear with me. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to wing this. Imagine if I had just come from 10 minutes in the future, and I said, Frank, when you walk out that door, you're gonna fall and you're gonna hit your head and you're gonna forget everything, everything you know about life. And you had an opportunity to record a message to Frank with no conception of what is important, what's valuable. What would the message be? And it could be about just being human, being a good father, a partner, or creative. What would you wanna remind yourself is really important.
1: Oh, I don't think that's hard at all. I think I would remind myself how lucky I am to have the the family I have. You know, I'm very lucky I had a a mother who who, um, I feel so fortunate to have had her because she encouraged me in every conceivable way as a child to, she was someone from very unpretentious background, I think she might have wanted to be a writer and artist herself, um, but her generation of women, she was an te- elementary school teacher. Circumstances didn't work out that way. She didn't have those opportunities. She did everything possible to create those opportunities for me. Then I think incredibly, how incredibly fortunate I am to have a wife whom we actually got married by the last time I saw my mother basically alive was at my wedding, which was also 27 years ago, who I'm as my partner in life and very close to and we spend tons of time together we work at home as writers in new york you know and share everything and then these um two two wonderful sons and they both married terrific um young women who we've grown to love and have these adorable little babies and i feel how lucky i am to have had these people in my life and i can't imagine anything without them and from every point in my life from birth starting with my mother to adulthood with my children and my spouse
0: thank you for your time
1: my pleasure it's nice talking to you
0: all right humans that is it for the frank rich episode of the how to human podcast This is a production of Hello Humans. My name is Sam Lamont. You're welcome to find and stock both me and Hello Humans on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. Everything you need to know is in the description of the podcast, including how to get more of Frank Rich. As always, I hope you guys have a wonderful day. And a huge thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon, writes us a review on iTunes, or just sends a little love letter. Okay, have a good one. Until next time.